I think the history of women's cricket is only now starting to be told. Girls' cricket has hitherto been regarded as a joke by most people. I'm going through the six boxes of stuff which had been sitting in storage for years. The original 1934-35 scorebook was in amongst all these records. We couldn't always guarantee sponsorship because we were never in the limelight. I think it's the biggest challenge of their lives. They see England as the cricketing nation because cricket began there. When Elise Perry hit the ball over the boundary, I just went, oh my goodness. No body line. No barracking, just good cricket. Welcome to the fourth episode of The Maiden Summer, the hidden story of a famous sporting contest and the growth of Australian women's cricket. I'm Nick Richardson, and in this episode, we take a six-week cruise to England with the Australian women's cricket team on their first overseas tour and enjoy the thrill of watching the coronation of King George VI, meeting the British Prime Minister, and even more importantly, his wife, and experiencing a world beyond what many of the women knew. We follow many of them through World War II and find out how cricket emerges from the conflict, with its enthusiasm intact, and the Australia-England contests that follow. And then as the 1950s give way to the swinging 60s, we see yet again the paralysis that grips women's cricket and raises the perplexing question of why, and whether this is the most debilitating era of the game. But for the moment... Let's bask in the good feeling generated by the English women's tour of 1934-35 and the expectation surrounding the Australian women heading into England in 1937. The Australian Women's Cricket Council's bank balance has been boosted by the tour's success. It's able to put £300 towards the 1937 tour. The English women might believe that despite their avowed disinterest in competitive cricket, their victory in Australia reflects the natural order of things a deeper exposure to cricket for schoolgirls, playing regular games for longer, and perhaps most symbolic of all, that cricket is England's game. But Australia isn't going to let those preconceptions take root. The 1934-35 series inspired women all across Australia, but it's particularly exciting for those already playing club cricket. Here's a way to represent their state and from there, their country. In the time between the end of that first international summer and selection for the trip to England, several women take on something akin to a celebrity status. Take, for example, the Australian captain Margaret Peden. On August 21, 1935, Margaret marries Morris Ranald Emanuel. The event is in all the Sydney papers. And what helps to make it newsworthy is that Margaret's husband is changing his name to hers. He'll become Mr Peden. There's not very much information about Mr Peden, he's apparently a science and engineering graduate, but there's plenty of discussion in the paper not so much about that, but about Margaret's sporting career and her academic achievements. It feels quite radical in its way, but just what being married means for other women's cricketers will become clearer a few months after Margaret's nuptials. The enthusiasm for the tour to England is building. The selection process is, however, a little different to the usual. Interested players are asked to apply. It makes for a peculiar result. Nell McClarty, for one, doesn't put her name for it. I didn't think I was good enough and I didn't put my name in. Nobody else put it in for me. Not that I didn't want to go, but I thought I wasn't good enough. But there's one other important selection consideration. It was mentioned that there should be one, especially one from each state, and even if this person wasn't a good cricketer, she would go so she would come back and teach her state. 
That means there's players from the weaker states, South Australia and Western Australia, included in the final squad. That ambassador's role is an important function to help develop the game. Cricketers from New South Wales and Victoria in particular are quick to lend a hand in WA, South Australia and Tassie. Spreading the word is fundamental to continuing the game's growth. Skills development from those who have played at the highest level is equally important. As the cricketers contemplate the tour, someone else is also getting her bags packed. It's Pat Jarrett at the Melbourne Herald, and she'll become the first Australian woman sports journalist to accompany a women's team overseas. Pat's not only covered the England visit to Australia a couple of years earlier, she's playing club cricket in Melbourne. She's desperately keen to go, but not everyone thinks it's a great idea. Only one woman who joined the staff will remain unnamed, I think, except she's a good friend. But she said, good heavens, fancy the Herald sending a woman to England to cover a cricket match. Couldn't get over that, but I don't know. I mean, I just went to Keith Murdoch and said, well, what do you think? Oh, he said, I think it's marvellous. So off I went on this slow boat. No one could really doubt Pat's bona fides. She deserves a place on the ship. But there are some cricketers who find the selection process way too challenging and it doesn't end happily. Edna Ogden has had a stellar summer with a bat in club cricket and for her state of New South Wales. She's considered a reliable slips field and a great support to wicketkeeper Alice Wedgemond. Edna's so popular, she's bat-worthy. A cricket bat carrying her name is available in Sydney sports stores. In the early speculation around who's going to tour, Edna's name's a lock. And then it isn't. She's not picked. Margaret Peden writes Edna a letter of consolation once the news breaks. Dear old Eddie, don't know what to say to you as nothing helps much, but I want you to know we're all terribly disappointed and you'll be very missed. Wedgeman will probably be absolutely lost and heaven knows how the slips will keep their places without you. I really can't express it without swearing. It's absolutely damnable. It must be hell on you. You have done everything that was required and opened awfully well in Queensland and magnificently here. I'd like to tell you too that I've noticed how very helpful you've been in the team off the field. New South Wales couldn't have had a better or more loyal member of the team. With best wishes for 1937, yours, Pedden. Don't answer this. I'll see you soon. As sincere as the letter sounds, it's a peculiar set of circumstances. Margaret Peden is one of the selectors of the touring party. She's also the national captain. Her letter suggests that she wants Eddie on the tour, but can't make it happen. Instead, Margaret's sister Barbara, who's been living in England, is included as a player to join the team when the Australians arrive. The biggest challenge, though, for those who are going is being able to afford it. As Pat Jarrett relates, only two of the 16 women named are doing what's called home duties. Sue Summers, a left-arm bowler from South Australia, and New South Wales fast bowler Molly Flaherty. In fact, Molly will become arguably the first professional women's cricketer in Australia. Her family of 11 siblings in Sydney's Dulwich Hill decide to always support her in her sport. And although she works in munitions during the war, Molly never has a job like the other cricketers. 
She'll go on playing for Marrickville, New South Wales and Australia with the financial support of her family. And she goes on living in the family home until she dies. When Nell's finally selected, she realises she's going to have to take time off work at Henry Bucks, and that means not being paid. Each tourist has to pay a £75 guarantee. Each state association donates £10 for each of its representatives. Nell gets an unexpected hand from Henry Bucks. We had six shirts and uh, they made them at the factory for me. I paid for the material and they cut them out and the girls took a part to do and they made the shirts for me. Instead of getting six, I got eight out of the material. That was pretty fortunate. Peggy's predicament is a little more pressing. Since she took six wickets against England in the Melbourne Test of 1935, Peggy Antonio has become something of a star. But what makes her different to most of her contemporaries is that she's been coached. I had a chap who took an interest in me, uh, just one of the local South Melbourne cricketers, or he played for South Districts, and he just took on the job of coaching me. I was just very fortunate that I had a good coach. Mm. There was always somebody ready and willing to tell you things, and any bit of information is good when you're learning, so it was just a question of putting them together. Piggy's coach is a local character called Eddie Conlon, and with his help, Piggy learns how to bowl leg spin, off spin and wrong It's quite some wizardry. And that's why Australian selectors want her on the tour. Trouble is, Peggy and her family have no money, let alone the £75 required. And that's where Pat Jarrett comes in. A small story in the Melbourne Herald about Peggy's financial difficulties flushes out a white knight. John McLeod, a director of the Victorian stevedoring company who'd known Peggy's father. McLeod stumps up for the £75 guarantee and Peggy's off to England. And she's more than a little grateful to Pat Jarrett. Nell, who's Victorian captain by now, gets a £10 donation from Henry Bucks and there's dance at Collingwood Town Hall, organised by her club, among other fundraisers. Both women have been told there'll be a job for them when they return, but it'll be six months before they get back to work. The tenor of discussing women's cricket in the newspapers is now to treat it as something unremarkable. The occasional headline still says girl cricketers, but for the most part, there is an emerging and more common male view, as exemplified by this piece in the Argus on the eve of the women's departure for England. Why do women play cricket? Why, if it comes to that, do they play golf, tennis and baseball? Why do they swim, jump, hike, fly, skate, ski and climb rocks? It's all part of modern woman's determination to share with men the joys of physical and mental blessings of healthy outdoor activity. They play cricket because they like cricket, and that's all there is to it. The team gathers beforehand for some pre-tour matches as part of a detailed preparation. The squad has one woman each from Queensland, South Australia and Western Australia, eight from New South Wales and five from Victoria. Margaret Peden is delighted with the talent she has at her disposal. The girls are the type who will pull together and band themselves into a fine combination. They're a talented group of young cricketers, keen to learn, and I feel certain they will thoroughly justify themselves on this tour. The tourists leave on the Jervis Bay, heading first to Colombo and then on to England. They're arriving a month early because of the coronation of King George VI. 
and they've been given front row seats as long as they take their place at 6am. One small thing they have to navigate first, the tour behaviour code, drawn up by the team manager. No member shall drink, smoke or gamble while on tour. No girl may be accompanied by her husband, a relative or a friend. Writing articles on cricket during a tour is strictly forbidden. While on board ship, no girl shall visit the top deck of the liner after dinner. Members of the team must retire to bed by 10pm during the voyage. Members will do physical drill on deck at 7.15am daily, except Sundays. The team will participate in all deck games. The only married woman on the tour is the captain. Edna Ogden, who Margaret Peden consoled in her letter about not being selected, is also married, but as we know, not touring. Peggy Antonio, at 19, is the youngest of the team. The women dock at Southampton and there's a good crowd to meet them, as well as Marjorie Pollard from the Women's Cricket Association. Margaret Peden makes some opening remarks. Everyone has scrupulously observed the rules. We have done a lot of physical training during the voyage, with cricket practice on the deck with a rope ball every morning. The bowlers showed good form, which I hope will continue in matches. All intoxicating liquors were eliminated from the diet, but the manager allowed us to smoke in moderation. After all, we have a long and tiring program ahead, and unless we keep fit, we will be unable to carry it out. What lay ahead is 21 matches, including three tests and a tour of Holland, and of course the coronation, a trip to 10 Downing Street, and even the Savoy. This is a very different world for many of the Australian women. Nell finds it exciting, challenging, and confronting all at once. I think we needed help. I know I did. I didn't even hold my fork the right way. <laughs> but she's taken in by the English scenery and the welcome she's received. Beautiful when you first drive England in spring, isn't it? Yeah, we come from the south end in a train, and um, I've always loved nature. And the girls were playing cards, and I never played cards. I, you know, we weren't brought up in that sort of thing, and uh, there's always just women here. And I couldn't stop looking at the window, all the daffodils and the lovely green and the, the animals sort of so content and munching away on the grass. <laughs> so I, I felt I could have stayed there because the people were kind and polite and gentle and they were there. People were a bit rough and ready, you know. <laughs> While the coronation might be a deeply significant moment for the English, Peggy is not quite so sure about it just thought it was marvellous to be able to go to the coronation as an historical event, but um, I think there must be something wrong with me. I'm immune to a lot of those things. The team is fated around the country, going to Windsor, meeting the Duchess of Gloucester, and to Number 10 Downing Street, where they meet Lucy Baldwin. Now, this is entirely appropriate. Lucy's been a member of the White Heather Club, the first women's cricket club, founded in 1887. The Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, even turns up. He's been an umpire, so it's probably just as well he was there. But Nell finds it all a bit challenging. We were in the time that number 10 Downing Street got in there and had afternoon tea there. And, <laughs> and then we went to Windsor and on the field we met the, oh, the Queen. She wouldn't be the Queen then. We were all supposed to 
curtsy. And I said, well, I wasn't going to do that because I'd be stupid enough to fall over. So I just shook hands. <laughs> and the lady I was staying with, she never let me live it down. She said I was a traitor. <laughs> a year earlier, Barbara Peden, now living in London, conspired with England's first captain, Betty Archdale, to have cricket clubs replace the white stockings in their women's uniform with long white socks. It's something of a coup engineered when some of the Women's Cricket Association leaders are away and it's quickly overturned when they return. And perhaps that's the reason why Betty's not selected for the first two tests. England's captain is Molly Hyde, a Surrey all-rounder born in Shanghai, and she will be captain for 15 tests. Australia's first game is against Kent, and 1,500 spectators turn up to see Molly Flaherty's eye-catching form. The woman they call the Demon takes 7 for 32, and Australia starts the tour with a win. The first test at Northampton is the first ever women's test in England. In appreciation of the occasion, the crowd is several thousand strong. When Australia bats after Margaret Peden wins the toss, Peggy Antonio opens the batting. She's actually done pretty well on the tour with the bat so far, but she's out for a duck. The elegant Hazel Pritchard and the more powerful Kath Smith push the total to Australia's highest test match score, around 300. When England bats, it's only Australia's nemesis from the 1934-35 tour, Myrtle McLagan with 89, who props up its response. Peggy is up to her old tricks, six for 51 this time. Nell bowls 21 overs and concedes only 32 runs for one wicket. England all out for 204. The Australians have a handy lead, but only Nell shows much resistance with the bat, leaving England to score a gettable 199 to win. McLagan and Snowball are untroubled to reach 58 without losing a wicket. Then Nell has McLagan caught behind to signal what turns out to be the start of the end. Kath Smith and Peggy put the skids under the rest of the batting order. England is all out for 167 and Australia has won its first test match by 31 runs. It's already clear that this Australian team is a bit more skillful than its predecessor. It's learnt much from its exposure to England in 1934-35. But cricket has its way of balancing the ledger. In the second test at Blackpool, England fights back to win by 25 runs. Myrtle makes her second test 100, which is more than half of England's total of 222. Hazel Pritchard and Kath Smith again hit half-centuries for Australia, along with newcomer Winnie George. It's another big total, 302 this time. England do better second time around, accumulating 231, but they're still under Peggy Spell, who takes another five-wicket haul. Australia's left with 152 to win, and all is going well at 2 for 68. Pritchard is once again striking the ball beautifully, but Molly Hyde comes on with her right-arm medium paces and triggers a collapse that means Australia comes up short. So it's all square when the teams head for the only major test venue they'll play in the series, the Oval in London. The English summer plays its rain card, and Margaret Peden tries to make a game of it declares at 9 for 207, after a bold 70 from Pat Holmes. England makes an impressive response with Betty Snowball out for 99. Nell makes two run-outs and takes three for 29 from 37 six-ball overs 
but it's her caught and bold of Myrtle McLagan that catches the eye. Pat Jarrett reaches for the adjectives in her report of the day's play. McClarty brought the house down when she dismissed McLagan. McClarty's effort brought the crowd of 7,000 to its feet, lying full length on the ground after falling and turning a somersault. McClarty triumphantly held the ball at arm's length when she caught and bowled the English opening bat. Australia bats once more and makes 224, with Pritchard and Smith again making runs, plus a solid contribution from Peggy. There's only time for three overs, which gives Nell the opportunity for another run out and Molly Flaherty to take two wickets. It's a draw. Peggy tops the wicket-taking with 19 in the series. Hazel Pritchard has scored 306 runs just behind England's Myrtle McLagan as the top run scorer. The series shows just how much the Australians have improved and it's unsettling for some English players, as women's cricket historian Raf Nicholson discovers. In the WCA's report on the series, Molly Hyde, who was the England captain, suggested that um, the Australians had showed what she described as signs of very intensive coaching. Um, so I think that England England were a bit annoyed that they hadn't managed to win that second series because it was a it was drawn one all. Um, so they were a bit annoyed and they kind of justified it by saying, oh, well, the Australians have gone off and had all this coaching, whereas we're just kind of naturally talented. There's some light-hearted moments amid it all as Margaret Peden relays on her return when she breaks the time-honoured custom of what happens on tour stays on tour. When she talks about teammates Pat Holmes and Alicia Walsh, who stay on in London to study. Their forte is apparently not housekeeping, as they boiled some handkerchiefs to ashes one day while I was there, but they were comforted by the thought that they still had the ashes. Margaret Peden's captaincy has been a success, Although some players spend little direct time with the skipper because everyone's billeted separately, there's respect for her role and her skills. Nell is certainly impressed. Oh, she was wonderful. She was one of us. And she was a very intelligent woman and she was not a famous cricketer, but she had a good brain and she was a good captain. There's other noteworthy elements of that tour. Pat Jarrett, who not only covers the tour with a range of stories, from the coronation through to the cricket, but she also developed some lifelong friendships. And what distinguishes her role on tour is that she has an Access All Areas pass, as Peggy remembers. She was given carte blanche by the Herald and she did just that. Oh yes, Pat had open go and she used it. Margaret Peden's view of the tour reveals a considered appreciation of the state of Australian women's cricket. English spectators were very appreciative of good cricket And I'm confident that when the next women's test team comes to Australia in 1940, they will be accorded the same interest and warmth of welcome that befell our lot on this very happy trip. We attach the same importance to a match against a minor county on a village green as we did to a test. And I feel that while this spirit predominates and while the word test is not unduly stressed, there will be more successful tours. Because we were level when we went to the Oval for the third test, it does not follow that a match with unlimited time was desirable. Three days were sufficient for these representative matches and the result of the rubber was satisfactory to both sides. The youth of our team was a marked contrast to the English team which contained older and more experienced players. And English women's cricket is equally pleased at the level of interest, if not so much the result. Raph Nicholson explains. 
Overall, as a series, it was kind of viewed as a big success, as you say, in terms of the big crowd sizes. So there were 5,000 people at the first test at Northampton, 4,000 at the second at Blackpool, and then 6,000 in the series decider at the Oval. So that was really positive. And in terms of the press coverage, that was pretty good as well. And there are reports in all the major national newspapers and the Times sent a correspondent to the Oval Test and he wrote that established women's cricket has passed the frivolous stage of eccentric matches played with broomsticks and that there was much to admire. After such an inspired performance, there's great hope for the return English visit to Australia. Betty Archdale has been finishing her legal qualifications and she's selected. She's all set to sail with the English team in October 1939, but the war changes all of that. And then, at the end of 1939, Peggy Antonio retires. I'm going to do all the things I've wanted to do for years, play golf, tennis, swim, just do anything and everything but play cricket, Peggy tells Pat Jarrett. I took my equipment to the match on Saturday, but somehow I felt more fed up than usual and decided to call it a day there and then. I've had too much cricket and will be better away from it for a while. And with that, the girl Grimmett walks away from cricket. She's 22 years old. The war provides opportunities for women that aren't there before. Jobs open up, new careers beckon, travel too. Betty Archdale's experience is in many ways typical, and it leads her back to Australia. When the war broke out in 1939, I joined the Wrens, the Naval Service, uh, largely because a friend of mother's, a fellow suffragette of mother's, Mrs Lawton Matthews, was the director of Wrens. I was a short time in England, and then I really was extremely lucky. I was sent overseas in charge of the first group of Wrens that went overseas. Uh, we set off in a, in a transport ship for Singapore. Then we went to Colombo. When the Japs took Singapore, we went to Colombo. Then we went over to Mombasa in Kenya. Then I left that group and went up to the Persian Gulf for about a year. And then I went home. Uh, and then after about another year, I came in charge of another very much larger group of wrens out to Australia. Betty's co-conspirator on the White Stocking Affair and sister of the Australian captain, Barbara Peden, has married a Scotsman, Colin Munro, in London in 1938. Betty sits in the front row of the church among a group of favoured friends. Barbara's working as an architect in London when war breaks out. Lieutenant Munro is wounded at Dunkirk and becomes a German prisoner of war. Barbara's pregnant and heads to the relative safety of Canada, only to return to Sydney in April 1941 with her nine-month-old son. For the next few years, Barbara will campaign on behalf of the Prisoner of War Relatives Association, making monthly radio broadcasts on what the association's up to. Colin is released in 1945. The newspapers carry reports that nearly every sportswoman is helping with war work. The New South Wales Women's Cricket Association even conducts a census to find out what role their members are playing. Margaret Peden assembles some of her club colleagues and they head into the bush to chop firewood to sell for war funds. In Melbourne, Nell decides it's time to leave Henry Bucks. She goes to work in a munitions factory, checking cartridges for defects. Molly Flaherty gets her first job in a munitions factory in Sydney. For Pat Jarrett, the war changes the way she sees journalism. Her plans are to cover the Olympic Games scheduled for Helsinki in 1940, 
but when they're cancelled because of the war, she asks Keith Murdoch to send her to the US to report on what's going on in America. Murdoch's bemused at the thought of his senior female sports writer opting for such a change in a time of war, but the Herald eventually agrees. It sets in train a series of events that mean Pat Jarrett never returns to reporting women's sport. But it was when I came back from England that I thought, well, there's got to be more in life for me in journalism than just sports writing. Well, I did some stuff about the coronation to start off with, and because I'd been in the Herald long enough to see the opportunities that there were there for special writing, you know, for magazine writing, for special writing, and for reporting. And uh, it wasn't hard for me because I was encouraged by uh, Frank Murphy, Chief of Staff, and uh, Sidney Deemer, and certainly by Keith Murdoch. The war makes all that more possible. And what's happening for women's sport here is also happening in England, as Raf Nicholson explains. Obviously, it stymies club cricket, um, and there, you know, there were only a few clubs that kind of survived the war, um, in the sense of kind of actually um, managing to organise matches during that period. But there's also an unprecedented opportunity for women to access cricket during the war, and I think that then some of that feeds into a kind of growth immediately after 1945. Um, so there are kind of women who are going into factory work or civil defence work or going into the women's land army and growing vegetables, etc. Um, and then there is uh, women's cricket happening in the armed forces for the first time as well. And so actually all of those things kind of come together. There's actually no lessening of the interest in sport once peace is declared. The first post-war meetings of the Australian Women's Cricket Council decide to invite the Women's Cricket Association to send an English team to Australia in 1947, and England readily accepts, although the visit doesn't happen until the summer of 1948-49. It's reflecting what Raf Nicholson describes as the pent-up demand for sport. Six years of war has only increased the desire to play and watch games again. Women's cricket's no different. There are, though, still throwbacks to a pre-war era that seem to ignore the advances the game has made. That or it's a portent of things to come. Under the headline, Left Children to Play Cricket, the Brisbane Courier-Mail reports in 1947. Two women who have left children at home in Sydney will play in the New South Wales women's cricket team against Queensland women at the exhibition ground tomorrow and on Saturday. The team includes school teachers, a university student, stenographers, housewives and others, but no ex-service girls. In the next 20 years, there will be five series between Australia and England, but Australia's return to post-war international cricket starts with a one-off test against New Zealand in 1948. It ushers in the career of one of Australia's finest cricketers, Betty Wilson. Betty's from Collingwood in Melbourne, and her father's a shoemaker who makes her cricket boots for her. She's got a limitless appetite for the game and plays for Victoria, aged 16. But the trip to New Zealand forces her to make an important decision one she keeps on making. 1948, I was picked. Actually, I was engaged at that stage of the, my life and um, there was touch and go whether I got married or whether I kept playing cricket. And then when I was chosen to go to New Zealand, I thought, oh, gosh, I'd never been outside of Victoria, I don't think, you know, other than cricket. And to be able to get a trip to New Zealand, oh, gosh... So postponed the wedding again. And then I did quite a few things uh, in New Zealand. 
And at the end of the 1948-49 season, the English girls were coming to Australia. And, of course, uh, then another postponement of the marriage business because when I played against England, I started to perform again, you see. Even now, there are few cricketers of any era who come close to Wilson's achievements. In her first test, she takes 10 wickets in the match against the Kiwis with her right arm offspin and scores 90. Betty's arrival marks a period of Australian ascendancy with Captain Molly Dive and batter Una Paisley complementing Betty's all-round skills and Molly Flaherty and Amy Hudson are still part of the scene as well. In the first test of the 1948-49 series against England in Adelaide, Betty becomes the first Australian woman to score a test century. She also takes six for 23 in England's first innings. Australia wins easily, but the remaining two tests are drawn, so Australia claims its first series win. There's no doubt Betty is a star. Now, the choice of what she wants to do with her life has become more pressing. She believes she has to choose between cricket or a home life. We, we, uh, you current models can take the pill. Uh, there was no such thing in my day. And um, it was uh, very, very touch and go, you know, and uh, you didn't take a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it depended what you wanted out of life and and who, who was going to knock a chance to go to England to play cricket, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, mm-hmm. no way. The game seems to be never more popular. Just over 9,000 fans attend a day at the Adelaide Test. The Australians are still playing at the SCG and the MCG. In Sydney, the Australians use the same dressing room that the men used. English captain Molly Hyde scores 124 at the SCG and her portrait is hung in the pavilion. The tests in the Australian Tour of England in 1951 are played away from the main arenas, except for the Oval. The series is drawn again, a match each, and there's good crowds supporting the matches. But it's another seven years before the next series takes place, in the Australian summer of 57-58. For the first time, there are four scheduled tests, but one's at the Junction Oval in Melbourne and another at North Sydney Oval. A third is at the Wacker Ground in Perth. Faith Thomas, the first Indigenous person to play cricket for Australia, makes her debut in Melbourne. It coincides with Betty's most remarkable feat yet. She takes seven for seven, including a hat-trick, and follows it up with a century. No one wearing long trousers, white stockings or long white socks has done what Betty's done. Ten wickets in a match and a century. Her philosophy about competing is simple and remarkably modern. If you don't win, well, somebody's better than you. So what have they done that you didn't do? And the next time you meet them, you might beat them because you've learned something from them. But it takes somebody better than you to beat you. She takes another six wickets and makes a century in the third test, but three of the four tests are drawn, while the others abandoned because of rain. Betty Wilson will play 11 tests for Australia in 10 years. The war is one reason for that. But there are other reasons too. We're starting to see the wheels slowing on women's cricket. It's the 1950s. There are changes afoot. In Australia, there is a sense of comfort and ease, a new consumerism, white goods, televisions, the expanding suburbs, cars, Sunday drives, 
and the regular tick-tick of a quiet life. The women's sports reporters, including Pat Jarrett, are no longer filing copy about women's sport. No one's around to champion sport in the papers for women. There are details, but no reporting. In time, the details too will disappear. Cricket in general has become less interesting to watch and perhaps even to play. The men's ashes spends the decade featuring some lacklustre encounters in England and Australia. There's also the rise of other sports, softball in particular, that offers girls a quick team game without the technical requirements of cricket. And cricket's greatest asset is also its greatest weakness. It takes time to play it and a long time to watch it. There's a series in England in 1963 which the home team wins and then in 1968-69 England comes back to Australia for what's a drastically changed situation. Australia has an inexperienced team and for the first time all the tests are on smaller grounds outside the test match circuit. There are three draws. It's almost like the end of the 1960s is bringing down the curtain on the fading light of the pioneers of that maiden summer. At a time of experimentation, liberation and provocation, cricket looks a little out of date. This is how Raf Nicholson sees it. Well, I think that we always have to remember that women's cricket and, and men's cricket, the, the people who are playing and the people who are running it are operating within a sort of broader societal context. Um, I guess that as a historian, we have to kind of be conscious of kind of broader social changes. And I think that that's what's happening in England in the, the late 50s and during the 1960s, is that there's a decline in, in cricket generally, um, so men's cricket and women's cricket. And it seems like what happens is that cricket, to some extent, becomes a bit unfashionable. And obviously we think of kind of the swinging 60s as being this sort of time of drugs and rock and roll and, and cricket isn't viewed in that way by most people. Cricket is seen as kind of a little bit outdated, I think, and struggles to keep up with this kind of new zeitgeist, I guess. Um, so we definitely, you know, there's definitely a growth in some other sports during the 1960s, things like squash and golf in England really grow. But cricket, um, men's and women's, kind of declines a bit. To some extent, there's a move to more home-based leisure. So with the rise of television, people who perhaps would have been more drawn to doing to playing cricket, um, which is obviously quite a time-consuming sport, perhaps are now um, more likely to, to actually use their leisure hours um, at home together as families. This is not so much a whodunit, but why didn't it? A compelling question at the end of a period of great innovation and achievement for Australian women's cricket. Next time on The Maiden Summer, we'll look at the forces at work that slowly start to revive cricket and the women who breathe life back into the game they love. This podcast has been written and presented by Nick Richardson and produced by Chris Plumridge. Thanks to Raf Nicholson. For details on sources and resources, please go to nickrichardsonwriter.com.au. Special thanks to the voices of Rosalie Flynn, Sue Westwood and Chris Plumridge. And remember to subscribe to The Maiden Summer wherever you get your podcasts.